We are going to talk about uh, a doctrine, uh, which is to say a belief uh, about Christianity, one that's very important to Christianity. I understand that not everybody here is a Christian, but um, this is a faith development convo, and part of my purpose, I guess, is to help those who are inside the Christian faith and those who are outside, and hopefully at least mildly interested, um, and to understand better what Christianity is all about. It's also actually a pretty, in top, a pretty important topic for how Christians live and act with other people. Um, the, the, the doctrine of adoption is something that's talked about in particular in five places in the New Testament, but it actually is implied all over the place. It's a very important doctrine, and the place where it's discussed the most fully is in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of people called the Galatians. Now, the reason Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians is because there had begun to um, be in that group of Christians some falling into some false beliefs, false beliefs about the nature of how people can be related to God. In other words, the Apostle Paul had first explained to them the basic message of Christianity, which is that you can be related to God and have a relationship with God through grace by faith in Christ. In other words, by trusting that the death of Christ is sufficient to take all the punishment or all the things that would separate us from God because of his justice and our sin, the death of Christ, Christians believe, dealt with that, separated, you know, took, took away all that stuff. And the life of Christ, everything that he did positively, um, living a life of love, living the life that God wants human beings to live, all of that, the Bible says Christianity is all about how you get credit for that by putting your hope and trust in Jesus. That's the heart of Christianity. What had happened to these people in Galatians is that they had begun to reject that message. They had begun to believe that, no, our relationship with God is not based upon what Jesus did. It really is up to us that we have to, we have to prove to God that we're worthy of his love. Come on in. You can come on in and sit in the back. It's fine. I'm sure there'll be people later than you that will want to crowd around at the door. So go ahead. Did we get any extra sheets coming back down? Or did we run out of them finally? No? Any extras anywhere? No. Okay. Well, sorry. Um, but the, 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 uh, what happened in Galatia is they began to lose their belief that salvation or a relationship with God was by grace alone. Now, the way I like to put it is um, the Bible uses this word called justification, which is basically a fancy way of saying um, basically getting credit or being seen as beautiful in God's eyes. How is it that we're seen as beautiful in God's eyes? Now, some people believe that it's just by virtue of the fact that we're born and that we exist. The Bible actually doesn't support that idea. The Bible says that we're born in a state of rebellion to God, not wanting to live for him, but live for ourselves. And something needs to happen to us to be beautiful in God's eyes. Now, what Christianity teaches is that what needs to happen is that Jesus and his grace has to make us beautiful. But the Galatians began to believe that they needed to do it themselves. And here's where it connects to the idea of adoption. Paul talks about this idea of adoption more in the letter of Galatians than anywhere else, in more detail. And the reason is, and here's the, here's the connection, is what had happened when they began to believe this false idea that they needed to earn God's smile, that they needed to make themselves beautiful in God's sight. In other words, when they began to view their relationship with God as a continual audition, uh, what happened is that it began to affect their relationships with each other. And Paul says, what's happened to all your joy? 
What's happened to all your joy? You're now biting and devouring one another. So the reason this, this idea actually is relevant for you, even if you're not a Christian, is that probably one of the things that really bugs you about Christians, their self-righteousness and their judgmental attitude, what you need to remind them is, hey, do you know about the doctrine of adoption? Because you sure don't live like it. In other words, Christians should, should be kind, humble people. Because what Christianity teaches is that our relationship with God is not based on what we did. It's not a reward because we were better than other people, smarter than other people, more courageous, more disciplined. And the fact is, whenever Christians forget that, whenever Christians forget that, it always shows up in the way they relate to other people. If you've ever been part of a church where you would say, yeah, biting and devouring one another describes this group of Christians I know, it's generally because they've lost this central belief. And so if you want to see how does Paul deal with a church that he describes as full of people biting and devouring one another, what he does is he says, let me tell you about adoption. The idea of adoption, the Christian doctrine of adoption. Now, maybe you thought this convo was going to be on how to adopt children or whatnot, which I would love to do a convo on that sometime because we actually adopted a little girl from China a couple years ago, my wife and I, and it was an awesome experience, and she's wonderful and a great joy. Um, But this is more talking about the biblical idea of adoption and why it matters that Christians would understand that that when they think of themselves, they should think of themselves as sons and daughters of God and what a difference that makes. There's a famous theologian named J.I. Packer, and I put this little (laughs) quote on here. Um, He's a a pretty profound expert, pretty well-recognized expert about what Christianity is about. And he says this, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. So, if you're a Christian and you say, I don't know much about this idea of adoption. I think I've heard of this idea that I'm God's child and, and I know that I pray. I pray you know, to my heavenly father, but I don't really know much about why that's so important to understand. Well, this convo hopefully will help you. And if you're somebody who's outside of Christianity and you particularly want to know what it's about, well, then I hope this, this convo will be helpful for you as well because the idea of adoption is actually sort of the apex of what Christianity teaches about the kind of relationship that you can have with God. So if you want to understand Christianity, whether you're on the inside or the outside, uh, I hope this will help you. And, like I said, if you're wondering why so many Christians are bitter, self-righteous, judgmental people who can't get along with anybody, well, you might find something helpful here to share with them as well. Um, It's not unusual for people outside of the Christian faith to see more clearly um, things that Christians themselves need to see. And uh, Christians shouldn't be surprised by that because the doctrine of sin should always humble us and make us know that we don't see everything uh, like we should. Um, all right, so where does the idea come from? In the Old Testament, you know, Christians recognize the Old Testament as, as part of how we understand what uh, is true about God. In the Old Testament, there is this idea of God as a father. That metaphor, that image is there in the Old Testament. Uh, There are also places where Israel, the nation of Israel, is regarded as God's son. Okay, But what you don't find in the Old Testament is anybody 
really addressing God as Father in prayer. As far as anybody knows, Jesus is the first Jew to address God as Father in prayer. You can search the Psalms, which are full of prayers of the Jewish people, and you won't find any direct address to God as Father. So I want you to understand that while the idea is there in the Old Testament, it's a pretty radical thing that Christians all over the world address God regularly as Father in prayer. And the reason is because Jesus himself did it. It was one of the things that was pretty revolutionary about his, his uh, ministry. And he taught his, believer, his followers to, regard, to, te- to speak to God this way as well. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, teaches unto prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. Okay? Now, what I want you to see, though, is that idea is there, if you will, in the bud uh, in the Old Testament. In other words, if you think about a flower, the flower is there in the bud, but you can't see it so fully yet. In the New Testament, you see the full flower of this idea of the fatherhood of God. And I want to tell you, listen, it is wrong and a naive mistake that I I, I think Christians and non-Christians alike make when they think about the Bible. The Bible does not support the idea that in the Old Testament you have a God of wrath and in the New Testament now you have this loving God who is the Father. The idea of the fatherhood of God is there in the Old Testament without a doubt. It's in the Old Testament, for instance, that God is described as, as one who shelters us under his wings. And it's in the New Testament that God is described as a consuming fire. It's in the book of Hebrews. So please, don't disabuse yourself of this naive but all too common notion that in the Old Testament you have a God of wrath, in the New Testament you have a God of love and a a God of of fatherhood. That's not true. That would be a naive um, oversimplification of Christianity. But it is true that this is more fully explained and applied, this idea of the fatherhood of God in the New Testament, starting with Jesus, but it goes... Uh, beyond that. Uh, Like I said, there are five places in the New Testament where the doctrine of adoption, the idea that we've been adopted by God into his family, is described. And the the three letters, there's three places in the book of Romans, the letter that Paul writes to people in Rome. There are one place in the letter that he writes to people in the town of Ephesus, and one place in the uh, the letter of Galatians that he writes to people in an area called Galatia. The interesting thing is all three of those places are significant Roman areas. In other words, Rome, obviously, is the center of the Roman government, but Ephesus and Galatia also have Roman government centers. And the reason this is significant is that Paul finds in the Roman law about adoption really a wonderful way to describe what God has always been trying to teach his people about the kind of relationship he wants to have with them. You don't find, actually, in the Jewish Old Testament law anything about adoption, Adoption, adopting children, is not part of the Old Testament law. You could adopt someone sort of to be your heir. And there's a place where Abraham, for instance, does that sort of thing. But the idea that you would adopt somebody into your family and give them all the rights and privileges of being your child is not there. It's also not in Greek law. But in Roman law, you have this wonderfully developed and and, and incredibly rich Um, customs and laws about adoption. And Paul, when he's writing to Romans, picks up on this idea and says, this really is a wonderful way to describe what God has always been intending. Now, why do I say God has always been intending that? Because the, the central message of the Old Testament is that what God wants, what's called the covenant promise, the central point of the Old Testament, is God's promise that he will be our God and that we will be his people. You find that over and over and over in the Old Testament. Even a a cursory 
glance at the Old Testament, you'll find that kind of idea popping up all over the place. God says, I will be your God, be my people, walk before me as my people. What I'm contending is that the best way to understand what God is talking about there is when Paul picks up and develops that and says, this is really the heart of adoption. That God would be our God, that everything that is his, he would give to us, and that everything that is, that is ours would be caught up into him. This idea that God would be our God and we would be his people and we would bear his image is what Paul is talking about in this idea of adoption. Um, here, let, let me quote from you. There's a wonderful book actually about Roman adoption. If you're interested, if some of you are religion majors and you want to study this a little more, there's a book by a guy named Francis Lyle, Slaves, Citizens, and Sons, Legal Metaphors in the Epistles, where he traces a lot of where does Paul get this idea. And, and basically one quote that helps summarize this is, is this. Listen to this. This is what's true about Roman adoption. The profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All his old debts are canceled, and in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of a new family. On the other hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property, controlled his personal relationships, and had the rights of discipline. On the other hand, the father was liable for all the actions of the adoptee, and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. Let me tell you a little bit more about Roman adoption. In Roman adoption, in in the Roman law, you could disinherit your natural-born children, but you could never disinherit your adopted children. The same is actually true in U.S. adoption law. When when my wife decided to adopt a little girl from China, we had to sign contracts saying that we would never disinherit our adopted child. But I've never had to do anything like that for my natural-born children. I can disinherit my natural-born children. I cannot disinherit legally my adopted child. Adoption actually gives you a greater security under Roman law and in U.S. law than being a natural-born child. This is one of the reasons that Paul finds it such a wonderful, rich metaphor to use. Hey, Robert, go ahead and send that scanner around. If you all hopefully know how to use the scanners, if you don't, ask the people around you. They know how to do it. Um, And make sure that that scanner gets back up to the front here when we're all done so that if there are people that we miss, that we can get them easily. So so adoption, this Roman idea of adoption, is a really wonderful thing. Now, you may, you may have picked up on this already. Is Paul being sexist in his language? I mean, all this whole morning I've been talking about sons, and I haven't been talking about sons and daughters. The reason is, the reason is because in Roman law, daughters did not have the same privileges that sons did. In other words, if Paul had said sons and daughters, he would not be saying something as strong as he's saying when he talks about sons. Romans did not adopt daughters. They adopted sons. Uh, reasons are because it had a lot to do with carrying on your family name as well as um, what are you going to do with the inheritance and the estate? Okay? Well, but what's interesting is what Paul does in his writings, in all these letters, is he addresses both men and women as sons of God. And, you know, ladies, if, if you think, well, that's weird. Why, you know, how do I have to think of myself as a son of God to be a Christian? All I would say is that guys who are Christians have to think of themselves as the bride of Christ. So both of us have to sort of be careful about just sort of taking our gender and imposing it on the Bible and only reading it through that lens, okay? Um, The relationship with God is bigger even than your gender, Um, but that's a topic maybe for another convo. Um, 
So Paul is not being sexist. Paul is using language of sons because only sons had the kinds of privileges and the kinds of status that he wants to say Christians have. All right, turn, turn the... What is the status and experience of adoption? I think the best place to go is to look actually at a passage, this section I told you about in Galatians chapter 3. And it says this, You are all sons. Now men, he's speaking to men and women. And he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying is this idea of being a son of God is more basic to your identity than your gender, than your status of whether you're free or slave, than your race. That's a pretty, that's a pretty countercultural thing to say. But nonetheless, that is what he's claiming here. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. That means part of his descendants. And heirs, according to the promise. Because always connected with the idea of being a son is this idea of being an heir and being one who will inherit. What I'm saying is, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But, listen to this, verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Now notice what Paul's saying here is that Jesus was sent so that, so that you could be made a son of God. I don't know what you think of when you think about why did Jesus come into the world? I don't know what you thought about at Christmas time, for instance, about why did Jesus come into the world? The Bible says Jesus ultimately came into the world, not just so that we could be um, forgiven of our sins, but so that we could actually achieve this new status of being sons of the living God. Now, this is important because a lot of Christians, I think, really don't understand the fullness of what Christianity is claiming and what it's teaching, which is, in other words, many Christians that I know think merely in terms of when there's a sort of what Christians sometimes call this idea of conversion, um, becoming a Christian. Most Christians think in terms of negative things that have now disappeared. Now that I'm a Christian, I no longer have guilt. I no longer um, have, have this debt that I need to be paid. And that's true, and that's part of the Bible's teaching. But if that's all that Christians think has happened when they became a Christian, they really have missed out on a whole lot of what Christianity is about. Becoming a Christian is not, according to the Bible, a matter of just losing some things. It's really a matter of gaining an incredible thing, which is the status of being sons. And the Bible goes so far as to say that Jesus was sent into the world so that we might become sons. And then Paul goes farther and says, because you are sons, because Jesus did something that made you a son, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is sent so that you may feel like a son. So here's what Paul's saying. The culmination of all that God has been doing, when the time had fully come, he says, God sent Jesus into the world so that you might become sons, and then because you are sons, he sent the Spirit in the world that you might feel like sons. So what you have here, this idea of sonship, two points that you need to, need to see if you would understand the Christian doctrine of sonship. One is, it's, a, it's an idea that talks about a status 
that's been given to people, and the other is that it's an experience. There, it's an experience. So let, let me talk a little bit about that and then open it up for some questions. Um, what is the status? The status, really, it's courtroom language. It's legal language, just like this word justification. In other words, legally, you no longer are who you used to be. You now legally are uh, adopted into God's family. You have the right to bear his name. You will be an inheritor of all that Jesus um, inherits, which is to say everything. Um, We don't just get pardon, in other words, if we become Christians. We get the full rights as sons. That's the status. But what about the experience? The experience is basically enjoying the status. And here's what I think is important. A lot of Christians, I think, are just content with knowing what's true about them, but they don't really know how to enjoy it. In other words, we tend to live, a lot of Christians I know tend to live in their head. Or they want to live just with their heart and their feelings. And what I'm contending is that in this idea of adoption, you actually have the two of them brought together. You have Paul teaching you that Jesus came to make you a son, to give you the status. But the Spirit was sent, and this is sort of a mystical, experiential thing that I can't fully explain to you. The Spirit was sent to give you this experience of crying, Abba, Father. Now, now what, what is this experience being talked about? I think one of the best ways to get at it is, is uh, the prodigal son parable. Maybe you guys have heard this story of the prodigal son. There's a boy who basically says to his father, I consider you dead. Give me your inheritance. Give me my inheritance now. The father does, which is pretty unbelievable that he does that what, after that kind of insult especially in a Middle Eastern you know, context. But anyway, the, the son goes, he squanders the money, and eventually he finds himself in really a deplorable condition. He's starving, um, and there's a famine, and he basically says to himself, the Bible says that he came to his senses, and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me like one of your hired men. So what he basically says is, I, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father, and I will, I will basically demand, because he literally says in the, in the gospel, make me. I'll, I'll ask or demand that I be given a chance to work off my debt. Now, what's really remarkable about, about this parable is that when he goes back to work off his debt, instead, the father comes running out to him. He actually takes all of the shame and the humiliation that would have been the sons. This prodigal son, when he took the father's inheritance and said, I consider you dead, he didn't just sin against his father, he sinned against the whole village. The whole village was scandalized by this and outraged by this. And I know that we always see pictures of this where you've got like a farmhouse and you've got sort of the prodigal son coming over the horizon of the fields and it's very romantic and pastoral kind of setting. In, in reality, Middle Eastern farms, um, the, the, the farmers live in, in the city, in these villages. In other words, the son to come home would have had to come through the gauntlet of all these outraged villagers. And what the father does is rather than let his son bear all the humiliation and the scorn that the community would have given him, instead he takes it upon himself. He hikes up his skirts, which no self-respecting Middle Eastern man would do, exposing his legs. Then he runs to the son. Aristotle said, great men are known by the slowness of their walk. 
In, the middle, in, in this culture, you don't hike up your skirts and run. And while the son and what he had done was a scandal, what the father does is even more of a scandal, and it deflects all of the humiliation away from the son to himself. In other words, the father expresses sacrificial love for his son. And what's fascinating is, rather than the son saying what he planned to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. Make me like one of your hired men. Let me work off my debt. Instead, when he sees that demonstration of costly love by the father, his speech changes. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Period. He no longer wants to be considered a hired man to work <laughs> off his debt. Instead, he accepts, he accepts the status of sonship. The father gives him the kinds of things that he doesn't deserve. He gives him a signet ring. Gives him a ring. In other words, I trust you again. The ring is what you use to seal a document. And, and the son who has squandered the inheritance is, is given trust again by grace, not because he earned it or deserved it. He's given a robe. He's clothed in, in sort of costly garments that, that show that he has an elevated status in the family. The father slaughters a pig and they have a, sorry, slaughters a lamb, uh, is it a goat? Yeah. Um, or calf, I think it's a calf, yeah. Slaughter a calf and they have a big feast. Now, here's what's interesting. There's another son in this story that Jesus tells. This other son is the older brother, and the older brother refuses to come into the party. And interestingly, what he says to the father is similar to what the younger son was going to say. He says, look, all of these years I have slaved for you. So it literally says in the Greek, all these years I have slaved for you, and you never gave me a calf to have a party with my friends. What Jesus is getting at is that everybody struggles with the idea of being a son of God. And, and you may think, well, that's weird. Why would, we, why would we struggle with that? Who wouldn't want to believe this? The fact is, the, most of us would rather put God in our debt than to be in God's debt. We would rather have control than fully accept this status that God gives us by grace. It's, it's a humbling thing to throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. It really, it, we, we like to sort of maintain some degree of control. And so what you find is fascinating is, you know, Jesus tells a story. I once had a guy <laughs> ask me about this, the parable son story, and he said, you know, I don't get it. It's actually because he wasn't raised in church, he actually understood the story better than most Christians. He said, basically, I don't get it. This younger son is a scoundrel. He's, he's, he's a wretch. He's, he, you know, he takes advantage of his father and humiliates him like that. If I had a boy like that, oh, I would never receive him back. I said, well, you know, what's interesting. I think you've, you're getting what the parable's about. Christians have heard that story so many times that they assume, of course, the father will run out and hug the son. You know, of course, God will receive us back. He, he loves us, right? No, it's a, it's a really remarkable story. And the Bible says that Jesus told this parable to some Pharisees who were trusting in their own righteousness. What were they upset? Jesus tells this story because the Pharisees are upset with him that he's eating with sinners and tax collectors and the kind of people that good religious people shouldn't associate with. And what Jesus says, if, if you, if, you know, he puts his finger right on the real issue. You Pharisees are like the older brother. You think that you deserve a place at God's table and you think that you've earned it because you're better than everybody else. But in fact, that attitude shows that you're very far away from the kingdom of God. 
because you, you really are acting more and thinking and living more like a slave than a son of God. There's something about the experience of sonship that is absolutely vital to Christianity. What is this experience? It really is an experience of assurance of God's love. I don't know if, if any of you have children, but there's just something wonderful about children and when you come home and the way they hold their hands up. And unless you teach a child, unless you teach a child to doubt your love, they fully expect when they hold your hands up, you're going to pick them up. They do. And, and this, is what, this is what the Bible wants to describe as the sort of the normal understanding and feeling of Christian people, that they would regard God as one worthy of their trust. Um, the experience of adoption, really, Paul talks about here, he uses this word crying, Abba, Father, in Galatians, the passage I read. And what you need to understand is that word in the NIV translation, crying, is really, it's really a much stronger word in the Greek. It's actually the word, the same word that's used of Jesus on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Paul's talking about here, this cry of Abba, Father, and Abba, Father is not a formal kind of word. It's one of the few words of Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke, um, it's one of the few words of Aramaic that comes over into the New Testament. Even though the New Testament is written in Greek, the early Christians regarded this word as so important that they don't translate it into Greek. It was so vital to them. It was so basic to their understanding of what does it mean to be a Christian. Christians are those who cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And, um, and Paul talks about this, this crying there's, there's an experience here he's talking about. And, and I think the way to think about it is this. Most Christians, the normal experience of Christians is you're telling yourself, I'm a child of God. I shouldn't think like this or I shouldn't feel like this. And much of the time, you feel like you're talking to yourself. But there are times when the Holy Spirit actually convinces you that what you're saying is true. And that's what Paul's talking about here. There's an experience that goes beyond just what you're telling yourself, where the Holy Spirit comes and, and, and helps us to be able to cry, Abba, Father. I think um, wh- one of the be- best ways I know to, to describe it is this. There's, a, um, there's an old Puritan. This is, this is interesting. You know, Christians have not thought a lot about the idea of adoption really until the time of the Reformation. Even though it's there in the New Testament, um, for many, many, many years, the church did not make much of this idea of being God's do- adopted children. The first like formal church um, document saying what we Christians believe that has a separate section on adoption is a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which came in the 1640s. Okay? But at the Reformation, um, particularly John Calvin, who a lot of people think as sort of a sour-faced, you know, hard-ass, um, John Calvin really is the guy that makes the most of this idea of adoption. He doesn't have a separate chapter on it in his great book, The Christian Institutes, but it comes in every chapter. He basically is the one who helps us understand, look, when you look at the Bible, this idea about being God's adopted child is everywhere. It's central to what it means to be a Christian, and he talks a lot about it. And then the Confession of Faith and the Puritans, again, people that we think of as very sour-faced killjoys, the Puritans make much more of the idea of being God's adopted child than most modern Christians. One of the Puritans has this wonderful illustration. 
and uh, I've got two little boys, so I, I love this illustration. He says, imagine that a man is walking down the road with his little boy. He's walking down the road with his little boy. He's got his, got his little boy's hand in his, in his hand, and he's walking down the road. And all of a sudden, he kind of jerks him up and gives him a bear hug. And this Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, says, listen, he is no more a son when he's walking next to his dad as he is when he's in his arms. He's equally, he has the same status, but oh, for the difference in the experience. And what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 4 is that while if you're a Christian, you're always a son, there are times when the Holy Spirit gives you a kiss, as it were, gives you a bear hug, as it were. Now, how does this come? To this, you know, the the only thing I'll say is this. Paul connects verses 4 and 5 and verse 6. The idea is that as you thank God for what he's done, the objective status of making us sons by the work of of, of Jesus, the Spirit tends to confirm and come alongside the truth that he's revealed in the Scriptures. And so the, the status comes not just out of the blue, but as we think and we meditate and we dwell upon, what does it mean to be a child of God? What this status really does is gives you such an assurance of God's love that it, that it really, well, it really is the power to live the Christian life. The power to live the Christian life comes from being sure that God loves you, not because of what you've done. If you don't have that, then what you have is what Paul described as the form of godliness without the power. And a lot, there's a lot of Christians who are basically trying really hard to do Christian things, but they're doing it so that they can get God off their back, or they're doing it so that they can make sure that God loves them. And listen, if you're the recipient of the quote-unquote love of a Christian who's trying to get God off their back by loving you, you know it, right? You know that they're doing it out of guilt. That's why it's so vital that Christians understand this idea of adoption, because it's the thing that gives you the kind of assurance. Again, adoption is something that can never be undone. If you're adopted into God's family, it it, it brings a security and a status that actually changes everything in the way you relate to other people. I I really hope that Christians would do a much better job at, at living and loving people outside of the Christian family. That's why I want Christians to understand the doctrine of adoption. Because if the reason you think you're a Christian is because you walked forward at a meeting one day and said, I give my life to Jesus, and then you kind of pat yourself on the back that you made a good decision and you were either smarter or more courageous than your friends who didn't do that, well, listen, you're so far from understanding what Christianity is all about, and without a doubt, you're probably bitter towards God, and you probably uh, are, are less than humble, and in a lot of ways, other people that taste you as an example of a Christian are going to not be very encouraged. And so what I'm saying is Christians need to understand the doctrine, the status, and the experience of sonship um, if, if Christianity would actually be the kind of countercultural force that it should be in our world. Let me open it up for some, for some questions. I mean, they're, they're, the doctrine of adoption, I said there's a lot of other stuff. Let me, let me say one more thing. One of my, one of my favorite things... Even if you've had a bad father, and, and in a room this size, I would imagine a lot of people have had, have had bad fathers, and of course no one's had a perfect father. But even if you've had a bad father, this image of the fatherhood of God is, is not ruined for you forever. I don't want to make light of that experience and the, and the impact that it has, but one of, one of the things that encourages me greatly, I'm a, I'm a lover of old hymns, and I've done a lot of work um, studying old hymns, some of you may know that, but... 
There's a, a great hymn, maybe you know, called Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And there's a, 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 a verse in there that says, Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Now, that, that's very warm, warm language about this fatherhood of God. But it might surprise you to know that the man who wrote that, Henry Light, actually was the product of a divorced family, which was pretty unusual back in the 1800s. Unfortunately, it's not so unusual today. But he was a product, he was, his parents split. His dad actually kept the children, remarried, sent Henry as a middle school student off to boarding school. And then he would write letters to his own son, and he would always sign them, not your father, but your uncle. So Henry Light, who wrote that hymn, his own father wouldn't let him call him father anymore for the rest of his life. And yet what is always remarkable to me is that he's able to write a hymn, and the father image is a warm and comforting one. Because that's not what he experienced from his father. Right? Gently bears us in his arms. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. He didn't experience that. Where did he get that? The only explanation is that God, through the teaching of Scripture about what the fatherhood of God is like, was able to deconstruct his idea of fatherhood and reconstruct it. Now, I don't, I don't say that that's easy or that he came to that easily, and I don't, again, want to make light of that kind of experience in the lives of many people here, but I do want to say that you can't, don't write off this idea. If you're a Christian and yet your idea of, of a father has really been screwed up, and whose hasn't at one level, but, but you know what I mean, don't write it off and think that this is hopeless and I'm just going to have to make do with other ideas. I'm just going to have to make do with the idea that God is my friend. Certainly that's an important idea, but the apex, the highest privilege that Christians have is the sonship of God. So, thoughts or or questions on this? I'm curious if you ever heard much about this or thought about this in this kind of detail or if you see any questions or places where this connects to dots of things that you have been thinking about. Yeah. A lot about the family of Christ, yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and you know it's true. Like another way of getting at this idea is is the Bible has this this whole theme of God, Jesus is our elder brother, right? Which is another way, and, and, and it's actually an interesting thing in that parable of the prodigal son that um, there's two parables before it where there's something missing and there's somebody that seeks it. But in this parable, there's something missing, that prodigal son, but nobody goes to seek the missing thing. In the Jewish culture, the older brother should have went in search of the younger son. That was his duty as the oldest son. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, the reason that I'm eating with these Pharisees and tax collectors is because I'm the true older brother. I'm the one who's going in search of those that are lost while you're sitting on your duff and complaining about it. Right, so it's it's a theme that's all woven in so many different places, and um, yeah, that's good. Thanks. Other thoughts or questions? Scanner still getting around. We're gonna talk for a couple more minutes, so one or two questions, and we'll be. Yeah, you again? Okay. Sorry. Um, no, that's all right. I was just gonna edit on Christianity. 
Good question. I don't know if I'm qualified enough to answer that. I do know, like I said, in Judaism, um, there is certainly the idea is there, but it's not fleshed out or developed as much. And it's, it, you know, Israel as a nation is God's son. But, um, you know, Jesus sort of takes it to another level, sort of unveiling, I would say. Um, I'm not sure if anybody knows. I mean, now, of course, in Buddhism, the idea of a personal relationship with God, that's not really a concept that you find in Buddhism or Hinduism, really. They're, they're slightly different conceptions of a relationship with God. So if, if there is in those kinds of ideas, it would be, it would be very different. I'm not sure about um, Islam. Does anybody know? Now, my sense, um, I'll have to ask. Actually, both of my neighbors are, are Muslims. I'll have to ask ask them. I know that they, they, my, my just limited experience with um, you know, Muslim followers is um, there, there's a, a sense similar to the Judaism of the Old Testament, and, and of course there's you know, common heritage there in, in a lot of ways, um, a sense of the reverence for God maybe eclipses sometimes the familiarity with God. I think just as, as, as an observer of Jewish believers, you know, Muslims and Christians, Christians tend to emphasize intimacy with God a little more. Um, some believers in those other faiths, from, from my perspective, from my observation, and I'd be interested if somebody would correct me, it's not that they don't have that idea, but there's definitely more of a, a sense of reverence, trumps intimacy a little bit. Um, in Christianity, it, maybe it's flipped uh, so there's a little different emphasis, but but I'm curious if that's a concept. Anybody? No. Yeah. Hey. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Right. Yes. And the idea of submission. submission. Yes. Yeah. That, and that's Islam you're talking about. That's right. That's what I thought. Yeah. Islam mentioned, you know, it's more, and that's really born out of the idea of the reverence of God, his absolute holiness and sovereignty and our right relationship as a servant to master. Whereas what Jesus is saying, and it's kind of interesting, you know, the prodigal son parable, I I wonder, I I, I probably think for, for a Muslim follower, that's kind of a scandalous idea that God would hike up his skirts. And like when Jesus describes God that way, that's something that Jews and Muslims are not really comfortable with. Is that is that true? Yeah. Um, so that what Jesus is doing there is he's pushing that envelope farther than, than the other two sort of people of the book are comfortable with. Which is, why, again, why I think it's one of the distinctive beliefs. If you want to understand, there's similarities between these faiths, but this is one of the things that is, is, is actually pretty different. Yeah. <coughs> Right. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, that's, yeah, that's only because of modern, sort of, that's more the influence of modernism and postmodernism than it is the influence of Christianity. Um, because there, are, you know, in your grandfather's generation, there was the same kind of respect for the father in Christian families as there are in some of these other cultures that you're talking about. That really probably, in my opinion, has more to do with them being more traditional cultures than the influence of the religion. Because Christianity certainly 
holds fathers and mothers up as worthy of respect. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. So it's pretty central to Christianity, but I think in a lot of our sort of Christian, Christian American kind of Christian homes, the influence of modernism and postmodern culture probably trumps the influence of Christianity at that point. Yeah. So it's, that's, that's not necessarily different in Christianity, that respect for the fathers and mothers. It's, I think it's the same in all of those ideas. Now, you do have, you know, in, in some of the Eastern religions, uh, ancestor worship, which is different, you know, but, all right. Well, any last thought? Yeah, in the back. Oh, you're good. You're just trying to get the scanner. Yeah, all right. One more, one more last, I'll give somebody the last word. Yes. Hey. Right. Well, I think, yeah, the Song of Solomon imagery is that of a lover and a husband and a wife. And, of course, Paul, in Ephesians, talks about um, God as our father and us as adopted children in the first chapter of Ephesians. Then in chapter 5, he basically talks about the marriage relationship. And he says, you know, I'm I'm really not talking about a husband and a wife, about the two coming uh, together. I'm really talking about God and his church, Jesus and his church. So both of those images are there. The way I think it's helpful to understand is that um, the Bible uses lots of different metaphors to help us understand the relationship with God. But what Paul is doing there in Galatians is saying, really the apex or the ultimate way to understand what Jesus came to do, it's not just to make us, um, he's not just our lover, though that image is there, certainly. He is our husband. Um, He is also our maker. All those images are there um, in some ways, I think they help caution us to taking any one of them too far. But he, he really presses the sonship. It's more central to the, the basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And he, he describes it as, he doesn't ever say, for instance, that Jesus came to make us his bride. He does talk about that, but he doesn't sort of say the ultimate purpose that he came for was to make us his bride the way he says that he, Jesus was sent so that we would become sons. Um, and, of course, in Roman law, you know, wives could be put to death just like that. All, all, the, all the husband had to do was to say that he found fault with her. Similar in Jewish law, right? It was very easy to divorce, even though God says, like in Malachi, I hate divorce. Um, it was relatively easy. So the security of an adopted son is probably the best metaphor for getting at the kind of security um, you have. But certainly that, Im- that imagery there is, as well. And they all actually go together. They don't contradict each other, but they add, I think, different nuances to the idea of our relationship with God, and all of them are precious. Um, I-, I will tell you, I think one of the interesting things is before the Reformation, the dominant metaphor, and really almost the exclusive metaphor that Christians thought about throughout the Middle Ages, was God as judge. And uh, unfortunately, while that is a true metaphor, and it's true in the Bible, Taken apart from all the other metaphors, it really gets sort of put out of perspective. And so I think, you know, being careful to sort of gather all these different images and try to put them together is really helpful for our faith. So, hey, you guys have been kind and patient. Have a good day.